Hi, everyone. Kevin Klinkenberg here. Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. Got my longtime friend Marina Corey on uh, with me today. Uh, I really wanted to have uh, Marina on because I, I, I feel like she's probably like, uh, I, I'm going to flatter you terribly here, but I, I'm going to say you're probably one of the more important people in the new urbanism that not enough people know. Uh, and part of that is, you know, uh, working under the shadows, uh, of Andreas and Liz at DPZ, but, uh, you and I have known each other for a long time, but you've had, uh, you've done an incredible amount of work, uh, working on master plans and, and codes. And, uh, I think there's just a whole lot we can talk about today that, uh, that would be interesting uh, for us to dive into. So thank you so much for agreeing to join me and, and welcome. Thank you, Kevin. That was very sweet. And I'm delighted to be with you. Well, it's uh, we don't get to talk to each other near enough uh, these days. We used to see each other much more regularly uh, years ago. And in fact, I was I was actually trying to think back today. My memory is so bad, Marina. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out. You know, I I'm, I know we met with through the CNU, but was was uh, perhaps Newtown the first time we actually worked together? Did well? Did we meet at the? I, th- I thought the Knight Foundation when you were a fellow there. Yeah. Was where we was yeah. that before Newtown or after Newtown? That was before Newtown. So that's when we met when okay. you came to Miami. Yeah. And then at the right. Newtown Charette was when the first time we, we actually worked on a project together. Yeah, that's right. That was such a fun project. And it's 20 years. Yeah. Oh exactly God. 20 I mean... years. Tim reminds us of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's amazing how fast 20 years uh, can go. I know. I know. Um, so, um, Marina, for those who don't know you, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your journey as a professional uh, and uh, how you came eventually to work uh, at DPZ uh, doing uh, town planning and, and coding work. Well, um, sure, I can do that. That's a, it's a long story, but I um, something most people don't know about me. I'll start with that. Um, where I was, a, we were refugees from Lebanon. We landed in Paris with absolutely nothing. Left when the war started, thinking we'd be gone hmm. for a few months. Never really went back. I was five years old, at the, no, seven years old at the time. And um, it, that really shaped, oh, my husband reminds me, it really shaped who I am in many different ways. Um, but that, that's how we ended up in Paris. My parents would always remind us that if the war hadn't started, we'd probably still be living in Lebanon and I'd probably have gotten married at 25 and have six kids by now. <laughs> um, so, but, but, so my formative years were, were actually a little bit in the Middle East and in Paris. You know, I went to high school there and I went to architecture school there. I started architecture school in Paris. Um, it's not what I wanted to do initially. I sort of fell into architecture, but we had a neighbor who um, who uh, I used to love to watch draw. And um, and he was, a great, he was an architect, of course. And I, w- I would sit there and, and just talk to him about it. But I actually wanted to be a diplomat. You know, I want to go into international business and go work in other countries and help folks in their own communities and in their own uh, neighborhoods um, improve their lives. But studying in, in Paris, the schools were hyper competitive and it would have meant studying in French. And I really didn't want to do that, even though I speak French fluently. I, I always struggle writing it. So um, I, I tried to find a, a, another career which was quite multidisciplinary and architecture seemed like a good fit. Mm-hmm. So went to architecture, did the first three years there. And then the director of our school one day said to us, hey, we're starting an exchange program with the University of Wisconsin. We've got six students coming. We know you speak English, show them around, make them feel welcome. And we did. And they said, now you have to come. So we, we six of us went over from Paris to Milwaukee. And, and 
and we transitioned from a, an architecture school of 400 people to one of 40,000. Well, a, a campus, the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Right. And I totally fell in love with it. Not only with the resources that a school like that provides, but we became friends with the professors and um, we really bonded with them in very special ways. Maybe because we were exchange students, I don't know. But um, I decided to transfer there and uh, finish our undergrad. And then immediately they happened to have a dual. It was one of the schools where uh, they they actually did very reasonable work. It wasn't these. I'll never forget once hearing a lecture by James Sight when he said to me that his daughter was at school at Pratt, I think, and her first project out of architecture school was to design a treehouse for homosexual leprechauns. And I remember thinking, <laughs> we uh, didn't do that. We didn't do that. that sounds so I typical. <laughs> I know, right? And so they had good projects. And we were doing projects in downtown Milwaukee. And Milwaukee, you know, at the time, John Norquist was mayor. And he was doing great things for the city. I fell in love with the whole Midwest at that time. Um, so anyways, I had a dual master's in architecture and planning. and um, did that for three years, graduated in 92. And then there was a mini recession. It's too cold and I wanted to leave part. And so we literally threw into hat name of the cities we like, picked Miami. We all moved to Miami, four of us, four good friends, my twin and I, and then two good hmm. other friends. And because we could, I remember Marianne and I, my sister and I flew to Washington, D.C., took an appointment with the president of the AIA. We said to him, we're moving to Miami. We know absolutely nobody. Who can you introduce us to down there? And he was very nice. He wrote two letters to DPZ and to Architectonica. So we called <laughs> Architectonica and they said, sure, we'll hire you as interns, but there's no pay back then. And we said, thanks, but yeah. no thanks. And DPZ, they were all on a charrette. So when we went, we actually went to tour the office. So that didn't happen. So I spent about five years working in two very different offices. Um, one where um, I had to, it was all about, all about business and he couldn't care less about uh, design. He used to make fun of me when I went to, when I go to University of Miami and go to lectures and he he really had a business mind. So I, I stayed there for two years, learned to do construction documents. Um, it was mentored by a wonderful Cuban man there. And then, um, and then I found myself, I met some friends and they introduced me to another firm, which was all about design and they couldn't care less about business, but I would go to their office and they had, you know, uh, cafe con leche watercolors on their walls and they did beautiful work. And I worked there for two and a half years learned how not to manage an office. And then my brother-in-law happened to be working at DPZ at the time, and he was going off to uh, grad school. And they were maybe looking for someone with a bit of architecture and planning background. So I went through a very formal interview with Liz, and I was hired. And I thought it would be a two- to three-year job, and it's now a quarter of a century later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny how that happens. So, And you're uh, you're a principal now, is that right? Is that a partner, what you're... yeah. Partner, partner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember, I very clearly remember studying Seaside in college. And, and of course, I remember I remember going to a lecture by Andres. There was a debate actually between Andres and Peter Eisenman at the University of Miami. This was before I worked there. And just being fascinated by what Andres had to say. I didn't know much about new urbanism until I started working for DPZ. I, it made sense to me when I thought back on my upbringing, whether, you know, in, whether it was in Paris or it was in Lebanon or Abu Dhabi or wherever we lived, it, it made perfect sense. You know, we lived out on the streets, but I hadn't really connected the two until I heard, I heard Andres speak. So that's, that's interesting. So even in your uh, time here at, at University of Wisconsin, it allows you really didn't have much insight into new urbanism then and what was going on. And, and you, so more or less kind of learned that working at DPZ. 
I did. I did. I, when I first started working at DPZ and I taught Andres I had a planning degree, he told me, well, to work here, you're going to have to unlearn everything you've learned. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a, in college, in hindsight now, it was a lot of uh, policy, it was a lot of statistics, it was a lot of writing, it was a lot of, but because they were incorporated with the architecture school, there was a lot of urban design too. And then there was that, they bridged the gap between the two. And so you were, the planners were integrated with the architects. It still is, as far as I know. And so that helped a bit for sure. So do you remember back then? So what were the first maybe a couple of projects you worked on at, oh, at DPZ? Oh, I remember very clearly. So my first couple of years were in architecture and there were two projects I worked on, one that got built and one that didn't. And the one that didn't was um, a heartbreak. Uh, the, the, my very first project from an architectural standpoint was a, um, uh, a center for the domestically abused on Miami Beach for women who were domestically abused. And with Liz, she was the principal. We designed, you know, just a wonderful building, very thoughtfully done. It, didn't happen. We took it all the way through CDs and even contractors. And when it was priced, they they realized they didn't have the funds. Even if they were to build it, they wouldn't have had the funds to maintain it. It was as basic as that. So it got shelved, unfortunately. And then I worked on a, the Biscayne Nature Center. Um, so a nature center on Key Biscayne. And that, was, that got built and that was a lot of fun. So my first few years at DPZ were doing exclusively architecture. And then I... Um, I decided I kind of wanted to try the plan. I would see the planners go off to all these different places. I was like, I kind of want to do that. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I did some local charrettes. Um, I worked first uh, with Liz initially and practically only with Liz. Um, and in fact, the design district was my very first charrette in 1997, um, where the 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 city wanted the, I don't know you you remember Miami so you remember the design sure. district and what it looked like and um, there was a very visionary developer Craig Robbins who wanted to do who wanted to restore some buildings wanted to do some adaptive reuse wanted to have some streets um, retrofitted wanted an off ramp off I ninety five into the design district and the city really worked with him and um, that sort of kicked off the, the the revitalization of the design district you know and he was very good about hiring. Um, young, talented, unknown architects at the time, as well as very well-known architects. Like Zaha Hadid redid a building in, in mm -hmm. the design district, but he hired my sister and her husband when they were just, they had just started their firm. He hired, hired Kerry Nadib out of Miami to do another, who teach at University of Miami to do another building. He hired Roberto and Rosario, who are these wonderful um, Argentinian artists to do some sculptures in the design district. So a combination of sort of very tactical stuff these new architects who are very hungry to do some nice buildings and who design very thoughtful and very creative and very artistic buildings it began to give the design district a little bit of a flair. And then, of course, in 2011 was when he had then enticed everybody from Bell Harbor to come to the design district and it became what it is today. You know, a sort of very expensive um, Gucci Prada, you know, kind of place, but um, but still with uh, with some very, very good urbanism. And, you know, yeah. we pierced passages through the blocks and did some very creative things as well, working with some wonderful firms out of New York and um, landscape firms as well. Yeah, I remember you, you you, and I talking a lot about the design district, you know, in, in this way. Obviously, it had been several years after you started working on it. And it was a pretty incredible transformation in, in Miami because that district itself was really pretty down and out yeah. um, before that effort. So, you know, I, I think... You and I uh, and others that we're friends with uh, spent most of our time working together on newer communities, 
uh, and, you know, new master plan uh, communities. And so what, what was your first, what was the first one you worked on that was just a sort of a greenfield or a new community from scratch? My first one was with my first new community was with Andres when we designed Mount Laurel. I was just a designer on the show. I wasn't managing it in any way, but I, but I remember not knowing which side was up because he led his charrette so differently than Liz. Um, it was, it was, and I remember I was assigned with Tom, with Bob Gibbs to work on the retail portion of the downtown in Mount Laurel. So that was my very first sort of new town um, okay. project. And that's um, Birmingham? Birmingham, right? Alabama. Yeah, Mount Laurel. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful development. And so you spent more time, did you spend more time working on the architecture or sort of going back and forth between architecture and town planning on that? I was, you know, it was a bit of a blur. I was, it was, this was my first year I did a little <laughs> bit of everything, but I, I very clearly remember uh, working with Bob Gibbs on the retail and, you know, laying out the, what, what eventually became, well, with multiple iterations, some of the, well, the town center. Yeah. 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 Okay. So but, but I now, did do many plans where, when my first charrette was DPZ, I was doing the building types as we were okay. on charrette because that's what I was doing. And then when I began to manage charrette, I sort of got away from that. And I kind of miss it, but I haven't done it in so many years. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that, you know, I think most people don't realize who haven't worked directly you know, with DPZ uh, over the years or just don't know um, you all very well is that from the beginning, it, it's been uh, it's been a big part of your formula to invite lots of different architects into the projects, uh, into the design charrettes, and then ultimately into the execution uh, of the projects. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that philosophy or why that is and, and how that's worked uh, over the years. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I would say it's been a mixed bag, but generally it's been a good thing. So we have what we call the DPZ cloud. This is a collaborators from across the country, like you included, um, where, wherever we go to, in, and the guild was so helpful in helping set that up, of course, um, mm -hmm. wherever we went and we weren't going to stay on and do the architecture, but not only that, because we really believe that you need multiple hands. I mean, DPZ is one of those few firms that believes you need multiple architects designing communities. I think it's what makes yeah. our project sort of stand out. We're always bringing architects with us to um, to help inform the master plan, and you know our work informs what they do. So that they're developing different building types, and so while we're we're only a firm of you know we fluctuated from eighteen at maybe the lowest to I don't know twenty five thirty at the highest. They've never wanted to mm -hmm. Liz Andres never wanted to grow the firm much beyond that. Um, with our reach is global and the reason our reach is global is because we do find local collaborators. Um, so we have, you know, we've got engineers we work with, civil engineers we work with, we have architects depending on where we are in the country and we have formed, you know, some great uh, loose partnerships. I mean, they have their own practices, they do very well, but we reach out to them to help us on the projects and they bring their own flair. And so it's, um, I, I, I love that, that way of working and, you know, it's, um, lightens the load on DPZ, even though I think sometimes we feel yeah. we are missing out on doing some architecture and we should probably do a little more of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, in, it's really a, an incredible tension because our, you know, back when Brian and I had our firm, it was something we wrestled with, yeah. you know, all the time. There's, there's this real uh, pull whenever you have a client, when you take on a client uh, to do a new community, there's an incredible desire and pull to just go ahead and want to be the person that also does the architecture yeah. uh, for it. Yeah. Um, because you know, you're, you're more in the mix with that client. Maybe, maybe you think you care more about it, uh, or whatever. And, 
Um, I, I know we struggled with that all the time. We, we did bring in collaborators as well, but it's really, uh, there are an awful lot of people we know who do these communities and who really just kind of, as Andrea said, it basically becomes like a big architecture project uh, yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so um, sometimes it, most of the time it's worked out. Other times, you know, those architects have run with the project and, um, and it's just how, how the wind blows, you know, sometimes it works and yeah. sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so how many, do you have a feeling for like how many new communities you've worked on oh. uh, at this point? No, oh, my goodness. I mean, a hundred maybe. And, you know, very few, very few. Well, no, maybe a must, as a designer, multiple. But off the ground, maybe 10. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of our work in my office is not so much new communities. It's info work and a lot of coding. You know, we've become, yeah. we just by virtue, and 50% of our work is maybe uh, doing master uh, codes. Yeah. And we've done, yeah. you know, we've done a lot of codes and master plans for downtowns, you know, which are right. quite effective. Right. So, um, if you if you were to think about you know some of those new communities um, over the years, are there uh, are there sort of common themes at all that you've seen to either success or failure uh, from uh, the development standpoint? Uh, obviously, you know we've all worked on a bunch of these that um, never got off the ground for a variety of reasons, and then there are some that really took off, like Newtown St. Charles, and did incredibly well. Uh, Kentlands obviously you know took off, did incredibly well what have you seen that maybe advice that you might offer to others, uh, other developers or designers of what's, what's really worked? Well, you know, so I, I guess, I guess I could speak about Kentland, even though I wasn't involved in, you know, I became town architect when I moved up to the DC office in 2007, but it was pretty much built out. So right now, even though we're still town architect, we're overseeing the, you know, the renovations people do, the additions people do, there's a couple of teardowns and rebuilds. Um, and it is, it is difficult and a rather ungratifying work to be a town architect, especially if you live in the community. I mean, I'm sure Tim Bussey will t would tell you that all the town architects who live in their own communities will tell you it's not a very pleasant job because um, what the developer did for Kentlands is when it was 75% done, uh, they handed it over to the community. And Kentlands actually has a very um, sort of formal structure. There's the board of trustees or the Kentlands Citizen As uh, Assembly, and then they have a they founded a board called the KHT, of the Kentlands Historic Trust, which is um, a board of made up of five residents who are volunteers who review every single visual change application. Hmm. And, um, and for Kentlands in particular, I, I was telling them this last week. Actually, you know, there's two ways we can we've been town architects. One is with a very strong design code and a very weak town architect, or a very weak code and a very strong town architect. So Seaside is an example, for example, of a very weak code and a strong town architect, and they've always had very good town architects. Kentland, we're, we're a weak town architect, but there's a strong design code because we make a recommendation to the KHT board and they ultimately they vote it up or down. It's their decision. Most of the time they listen to us, but you know you get architects on those boards and they, they always, oh, I like this or I don't like that. And we're always having to remind them it's not what you like or dislike. It's really what's written in the code. Um, mm -hmm. so, it, so, you know, it's, um, and this one in particular is, uh, as I look out the window, is um you know we have fights over the stupidest things like muntins on windows you know whether <laughs> that's hard to get to and this is across our communities proper windows is hard to do you know good roofs also like here you have to use natural materials so metal uh, cedar shake we've just begun to introduce some synthetic materials which are you know at a, some are better some are worse 
um, slate, we can do slate. So trying to evolve the code to sort of keep up with new materials is certainly a challenge. Um, that's one of the lessons learned, I guess. The other one is, I think what we did, one thing that we got right here, as in Newtown, are the streets. You know, the streets are great. They're narrow. Um, the public realm is wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. The open spaces are terrific. And it's, it's and Newtown is, is a, such a perfect example of that, Newtown St. Charles, because uh, Greg Whitaker wanted to build affordably. And so all the money was spent in the, was sort of put into the public realm, whether it's the bollards, whether it's the, the lakes and the canals and their, their edging. Um, it, it's a real lesson in how you can do architecture affordably. But, you know, what are the challenges in our new projects? It's always the missing middle housing. So, you know, we many of our projects did six packs early on. You know, Newtown has them. Our resort mm -hmm. towns have them. We work with one client right now who wants to do them. But they're always, they shouldn't be a challenge, but they are. Um, uh, we're always trying to convince our client to do them for, so for such obvious reasons, four packs, six packs, whatever, you know, um, it's easier. It can be more incremental. You don't have to worry about parking. You're parking on site. I think they're afraid of, you know, how they're going to divvy it up, who's going to take care of them, of the, of the common areas. And so it may be a little challenging that way. Um, but I, I'm amazed at how often they don't get built, even though we put them in all our projects. Um, we do have clients now doing duplexes and triplexes, you know, uh, in, in, in beautiful ways. There's one project of Galena's actually in, in Canada where he's uh, the developer there is doing some really nice work. Mm -hmm. Obviously, townhouses are not a problem. Uh, none of that's a problem. But the, that, the low sort of the low scale, um, the low scale uh, walk ups. That's the that is the soft spot. And that's such a good way to get affordable housing. And so this is that's the one. The one building type I don't quite understand why people don't do more of. Yeah, I think you know, as I've looked at that, we had the same struggle for a long time too, and it almost felt like you know, I've talked about this with with our friend John Anderson. Um, mm. it, it seems like that we have uh, a big part of it is we just don't know who the people are who would build those. Yeah, uh, and so we have these developer clients who oftentimes are really good at executing single family houses. Uh, whether that's a detached house or or a townhouse, you know, it's, it's still a fee simple single family house, or they can, you know, work with an apartment developer to do a fairly large, you know, apartment portion of a project, but they don't really know who the people are that are going to build the fourplexes and the sixplexes. And, and, and we've just, we haven't sort of curated enough of those people uh, that are the kinds of people that you might sell a lot to who would build uh, a sixplex. Totally uh, agree. That's why the yeah. small scale developers, the work they're doing or the incremental alliance is so important, you know, to yeah. try and nurture this whole new cadre of developers who want to take on these little projects. But, you know, um, one thing about Catlins, I don't want to forget to mention is, you know, it really was designed with this idea of successional growth in mind. Um, so the town center parcels, which are, you know, big parking lots with um, ha were laid out at the time to be transit ready so you know lines are run down the driveways trees were planted in the driveways they wouldn't have to be uprooted and replanted uh but now now 35 years later they're uh, kimco who owns one portion and Seoul who owns another kimco's coming in with you know the very big six-story courtyard buildings and you know it's giving the residents a lot of heartache uh because what you see around around D the dc area well not metro dc but um actual washington dc but certainly in this area are the you know 
whatever the, the the blah remember that photo with the blah boxes they all look the same they're yeah, they're, they're right, hyperactive right. with materials and and this yeah. is what we're not too happy about the, the idea of getting that here so we're trying to engage the residents and you know you've got to pay attention to what's happening in the downtown and um you know some people when you've been in a when a community has been going for so long as Kentland's has this is the 35th year the old timers care so much about the vision and they care so much about what Kentland's represents. But now there's a whole cadre of people that have moved in who just bought it for investment reasons or because they, you know, they like, they like the look of it, but they don't understand the history behind it. They don't, they get upset when we tell them what they have, what the code allows them or doesn't allow them to do. Um, so there's, there is that constant um, duality that you have, that you have to mm-hmm. contend with. Yeah. Well, and it seems like in a, in a case like that, where you're going to get that injection of big scale uh, in the downtown area, it's a, it's a chance for you to really test the code uh, from a design standpoint and see, see if you can take a building type like that and have it produce something really, really good. Well, if they could just stick to, you know, a limited number of materials, it would, that would, and good windows, which we're trying yeah. to give them, you know, the, what they should be doing, but they, you know, are they going to hold on to the building? Who's financing it? How much do they want to spend? What's the longevity of the materials they're using? All of that is, is at this stage is unknown. So we'll see. Yeah. It is always a challenge though. You know, it's a challenge to, and God knows we need more affordable units in this market too. Um, mm-hmm. Just to get decent looking housing that's, that is more affordable than not, you know, yeah. even just trending towards that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been a little, uh, I'm just amazed at the prices in the DC market and, uh, I have friends going back there from, you know, from high school and everything and just blown away by what a kind of a crappy run of the mill suburban townhouse in Virginia goes for. Yeah. And Montgomery County and Arlington County, you know, some of the most progressive counties in the country have all recently redone their comprehensive plan and they've all tried to do, you know, the thrive 2050 and the, they've all tried to, integrate missing middle to try to do what um, a lot of the um, a lot of some cities on at west have done which is allow for single family lots to be developed as duplexes triplexes and even to try be a little selective not just it can be anywhere Um, but they've had a lot of pushback you know for reasons we understand but I, i i was very demoralizing to think gosh even in these communities which are very consider themselves very progressive it's not an easy mm-hmm. thing to do. So that's yeah. why I think that's why we like to 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 tackle codes in this office, yeah. you know, the people I work with, because it's just such a great way to try make it easier for the for those who want to do the right thing or who may want to, you know, slightly identify. Yeah. I mean it's kind of a funny thing. I've I've often thought if I went back to, you know, my days in architecture school. Uh, to imagine that, uh, you know, we would all be working on zoning codes uh, <laughs> on a regular basis and that like that would become an area of expertise. I, I would have, I, if, if you told me that as a 19 year old, I probably would want to shoot myself in the head, you know, that no, who would want to do that? I didn't know what a zoning code was when I graduated architecture school. It's so, <laughs> it would be so different now, but you know, now there's more and more university. I mean, I see with Liz and Andres teaching, uh, they, they give their students real projects. I mean, you university of Miami is not the only one, of course, there are others that do it, but, um, real projects in real cities and they have, and the students have to look at the zoning and they have, to, and it's, it is such a valuable lesson. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, going back to the master planning again, just for a minute, uh, I do want to come back and talk more about codes, especially uh, your experience working in Miami and elsewhere. But 
um, I'm curious what, uh, how, how critical you have seen the role of the actual developer or, or town founder and, and what qualities you've seen in various projects that have, have led to success. Um, you know, just some projects getting built and others not getting built in, in the whole variety of things you've done. Patient, you know, uh, the, whether they own the, the land outright or not. I mean, that's had, or whether they have, you know, who's financing their project and who they're accountable to. Um, that's certainly part of it. You know, we, we're lucky that we have clients who tend to want to do legacy projects. They're not in for that. They're not going to, I mean, it's Rosemary Beach, Lucadia, they were in and out, you know, they wanted to hold on and then be out within 10 or 15 years, whatever it was. So there are some clients that are that way, but their, um, their, their commitment to the process and their commitment to, um, to getting it developed the way it was designed or somewhat the way it was designed is, is, um, is hard, you know, and is, and is it's their own commitment. I think that is really the, when I think back to the developers we work with, their commitment and their team's commitment, of course, I mean, the, the, the firm's commitment to whether a project gets off the ground or not, you know, that's, yeah. that is a big part of it. And of course yeah. the codes within the communities, like sometimes we'll write a code to comp, like we did a new town plan chance, for example, to comp to, to enable the easy implementation of whatever the master plan is. And sometimes they get adopted right off the bat and sometimes they get watered down so much that it's um it's impossible to to do and so they lose faith yeah and and yeah. sometimes we have developers who are constantly you know um we're, we're working on a project i know it sounds crazy all the way in tasmania but um hmm. where they i know where there's two brothers one is completely committed to doing it one way and the other one is just has been doing subdivisions his whole life and he just you know he doesn't understand why he would have to go through the heartache of fighting the city every step of the way to do what all their comprehensive plans say they should be doing. So <laughs> sometimes it's internal family dynamics too, that, that prevent a project from going as far as it'll, as it needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about, you know, our experience even with Newtown and yet somebody with Greg Whitaker who had uh, an architecture and design background, which I think certainly helped a lot. Uh, but also just an incredible uh, relentlessness and attention to detail to really uh, uh, pursuing a vision that he had in mind. Uh, So for him, it wasn't necessarily, like you said, it was kind of a, it was a legacy project in many ways. And it wasn't um, a commodity project like, like many other, um, and and some of his own projects were. Yeah. And they don't talk about assets, you know, like we have some clients who talk about their their building types as assets and you always know that they're not understanding what this project's about when they start to talk about the community, but it's also about surrounding themselves with the right people. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was hard. Greg was lucky he had Tim, you know, who's there to really help pay attention. In in and of himself, Greg was helped by the fact that he's an architect, that he really had a good um, understanding of what he wanted to do. Well, I'll never forget Greg staring at uh, one of the renderings that James Russell had done at the Charette, which was the Round Lake. And he, um, he, he, after the Charette, he said, that rendering changed my life. I think he realized the potential of the lakes and the canals in ways that were um, that he hadn't thought of before. But surrounding themselves with the right people 20 years ago was difficult. Now it's much, much easier. But our clients are always trying to find the right, you know, the right partners or the right um, internal folks to have on, te- on the team with them. You know, the right GC, the right uh, the right um, person who can go and argue with the, with the transportation department and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a, a little secret, something I, I used to often think about a lot of 
DPZ projects, when I worked on them with you and others was, uh, we would work on these and I always thought, you know, these DPZ projects have just way too much damn public space. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, I understand the desire for it, but there's like the ratio is just out of control. And, uh, and I was talking about this with, uh, Arthi, uh, Harshaker, um, that after, and it was, Obviously, as an architect, as an urban designer, you understand the importance of public space. I mean, we all understand it. We we get it, and we know the value of it. But it really it wasn't until I lived in Savannah, which has this unbelievable abundance of public space, that it really started to click for me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I had my own bias brought to the situation from life in a lot of midwestern cities where we have public space, we have wonderful parks and everything else, but we don't really have urban public space that much uh and uh so uh, i i mean i say all that to say it's funny because like now coming around is like i you know i really appreciate that and i and if you go to a project like newtown uh st charles and you see there there's an incredible amount of public space and it's really what makes it work yeah um, it you know so Kentland has 50 percent open space which is hard to believe that includes the lakes of course and the streets but i'll tell you so we were doing a lot of work in Saudi Arabia and they have this ratio that they always want to hit, which is 60% private, 40% public. And we're always pushing them because the 40% public just doesn't get you there. doesn't get you enough open space if you're doing a proper street network and all of that. So I think the sweet spot is somewhere between 40 and 50%. Ironically, I haven't hmm. gone back to look at all our other projects. It'd be interesting to see, but I can tell you that since COVID it's probably become even that much more important. And yeah, Growing up here, uh, growing up here, being here during COVID, and having access to this the, this abundance of open space made the world of a difference. Because you know, lots are small here. You know, you've got lots of forty-four foot lots. We live in a townhouse, so we have a small backyard. It's fine. We're only three, but um, the open space is your playground back here, and, and people are going to willingly trade a smaller lot for the ability to have access to all these different playgrounds. So you know, you see these diagrams or these notes that say. Every resident should be within a five-minute walk of a playground. But when it actually does exist, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Like Our daughter, Lila, has grown up with this, and it has given her such a sense of freedom. She, mm -hmm. you know, she knows every playground by heart. She could bike to them when she was eight years old. We didn't have to worry about her. Um, seeing, seeing kids grow up with that freedom to be in these open spaces is – the testimonials we've seen from people during COVID, like I did not leave Kentland for three months once, Kentland Lakelands, once uh, COVID hit. My husband was doing the shopping. I, I stayed here and didn't, it didn't even phase me. We had everything we needed here and we walked yeah. everywhere. And so that, yeah. that made a big, big difference. So all, yeah. a long-winded way of saying it probably has to be over 40%. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. We, we used to... We we talked about the uh, the playground thing, you know. I remember that going all the way back to like the lexicon uh, yeah. and you know, the suggestion of how frequent to have a playground and and uh, I again I always thought well that's a little much, um, but then of course tiny you know, tot lots, tiny yeah, tiny once, tot lots. And once you have kids, you totally get it because yeah. you you really don't want to, especially with little kids, you just don't want to have to walk that far no. uh, to a play area no. and. Uh, and it really does make an incredible difference to have that variety and 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 that layout and diversity available for for kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, talk to me a little bit. You've you've also been on the road a lot the last several years. 
you mentioned Tasmania and Saudi Arabia. I know you've been working a lot overseas. What what's uh, that been like for you, getting back and uh, working internationally? And and w- what are the different types of clients that you're seeing uh, in these places? Well, you know, so most of our work is is here in the U.S. But yes, we have done a lot of work in the Middle East. Now we you know it all started with one comp- actually two competitions, but the, we won both. But um, one competition led to just project after project after project after project, and in particular in Saudi Arabia. Now, maybe because, um, and, and it has changed so much since we started working there, which was in 2009, um, when I was the only woman I needed to have a special, only woman presenting anywhere. I was presenting to a group of men who had probably never had a woman present to them before. And now sure. you flash forward to what it's like now. You see women presenting. They are fully integrated into the workforce. I mean, the change has been tremendous. Now, my dad worked in Saudi Arabia from 1980 to 1990. So ironically, I would go there as a kid. Uh, I would spend maybe four months of the year there, you know, for Christmas, Easter, and then the summer holidays. And it was way more open than it was when we started working there in 2009. And now it's starting to open up again. Um, There's good and bad to it. So the good is, of course, that they have the resources to want to do projects well. And and the scale of the projects are mind-bending. Now, we're not working on any of the more... uh, what I would deem projects I'm not particularly interested in working in or projects that are just too out there for us, you know, you're, you're so, not working on the line. So no, we're not, <laughs> we're not, we've been asked, but we've said no. Um, and you know, it's not what I want to spend my, the rest of my career on personally, you know, hmm. I, they're doing a lot of new, new towns and new projects and that's great. And that's wonderful. But, their existing people live in, in the cities that really need to be retrofitted and fixed. And so that's where we're focusing our efforts. So mm-hmm. we're, we're working on codes and we're working with them to try help them, you know, improve their public realm because they have, you know, they do a lot of things, right. They have a very, um, they have a lot of community facilities that are distributed grant, uh, 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 based on the different neighborhoods and they have a very s- strong structure of neighborhoods and districts and all of that, but their parks, you know, are lacking, places and they, they, they designate the land but then they don't do it they don't put in the infrastructure that's necessary for it or they don't program it or they don't put trees in and so it, it sounds it's very tedious work it's maybe not exciting work for us it's exciting because i think it's where we really begin to impact people's lives the most but you know they want to be sustainable they have um, they, they've got this vision 2030 which is highly aspirational you know to mm. want to be to put three or four of their cities in the top 100 global cities in the world we don't know if they'll get there but it can't only be with their new towns they've got to also work on their existing in their within their existing communities and so um yeah we're working on a, a the code for the city of Riyadh we're one of many firms doing it um and that's been a challenge and it's and it's been uh, it's been fun you know we have again 13, 14 years ago, whenever we started working there, it was impossible to find a firms to collaborate with there. Now we have, and they're all young. They're under 40. They are, um, they're, they're eager. They're anxious. They want their cities to be better. They understand what needs to be done. They're learning how to do it themselves well and quickly. So it's, it's been, it, it, and this is all the, this is public sector work. It's been, you know, a mixed bag, you know, it's sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's a constant, reminder of why you're doing what you're doing or why you're proposing what you're doing and they want to do this very quickly and whether they'll put in the effort that it requires will you know and a big part of that of course is the street retrofits well that's we'll have to see if that happens or not you know so they're they they dream big 
that's for sure. But interesting how it gets applied is a whole different um, ball game. So obviously, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, I'm really curious what the like the legal and development framework is like doing a code in in a country like Saudi Arabia versus the United States. And, you know, we have a very um, specific history related to individual property ownership and the rights that come with that. And and so our codes reflect that to some degree. What's it like in doing that in a different country? So a couple of things. First is there's one person who can kill a project at any time, right? <laughs> so that's that's always, you always have that in the back of your mind. Um, number two, property rights, yes, are as important as they are here, but, and they also have this idea of equality and, and you have to treat property owners as sort of the same way. And they give, you know, they give you a land to build your home on and everything. So they do think a lot about property rights. Um, they don't like small lots and big lots because they want everybody to have about the same lot size. But now they're realizing, you know, they're running out of space. So they have to be a little more creative in terms of what they, you know, how they allocate land a little bit. Um, their processes are much simpler generally, simply because they don't have a city council. They don't have public engagement. They're starting to do that, but they, they it's not citizens coming out and saying, I'd like to see this or I wouldn't like to see that. So their permitting processes are simple, but that's a problem too, because they're not, they're, they're, they're allowing developers to do things that they really shouldn't be allowing, right? And there's no way to sort of uh, vet it with. And I don't think they have. I mean, they have their technical committees within the within the different uh, municipalities, but it's um, uh, there's a couple of problems. One is that I like to liken it to a bit of there's a can, cannibal uh, cannibalism going around in the sense mm-hmm. that they're all trying to get like it's not clear who does what. So there's the vision, there are those who do the visioning who, of course, love to do it. And then the municipality is tasked with just implementing it and maintaining it. And, and so it's not, they're not tied to it. They kind of want to do visioning too, right? So there's a lot of grab and pull and shove. And, and you know, what is one organization one day will evolve into an, a large organization another day because they've all of a sudden acquired you know more land and then it gets taken away from them because someone doesn't like what's been done. And so now then it shrinks again. So that uncertainty is very difficult. And of course, they don't tax. And that's a huge part of it. So they don't know where they're going to get their money from. They have an under- a bit of an understanding. But it's not like every property owner is paying taxes on his lot so that they, the municipality knows we're going to get this much money into our, our um, coffers. So that it's, they're all dependent on how the money is going to trickle down to them. So it's hard to imagine how to maintain things on a permanent basis. Hmm. So it, it, that part's very different. The nice part is that they, they, they have to write that the code standards suck, but the um, but they're we're trying to keep it simple for them. So not, not to overly complicate it um, with a whole bunch of different layers and because they, they do things actually quite easily. And then of course, the other thing they have is you can have a code, but if someone knows someone in that culture, they're going to get, they're going to be allowed to do what they want to do kind of thing. So you always have to contend with that. Um, And so we want to create processes in, in the codes to enable that, but with a certain level of predictability as well. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I never have experienced, you know, working in that scenarios so that that's pretty incredible. I do think now you also worked on the, didn't you also work on the project in Charleston, South Carolina with uh, Andres? So as a, as a, as a complete contrast to, to all of uh, that experience in Saudi Arabia, Charleston working, and basically you were, you were essentially hired, I think, to, to try to, uh, 
come up with a, a new approach to uh, building review and design review uh, in in city of Charleston. Is yeah, that so this, that that was so the mayor reached out to Andres and essentially said to him, "We're known for our beauty, and developers are coming to us, and they are being put through the ringer through this whole design review process, and then what comes out on the other end is just not beautiful. How do we get to elevate beauty in in in, in Charleston? No easy task. And so um, I think what we came up with is has been problematic in some ends and successful in others." Um, you know, we we suggest so we suggested changes to their processes. We gave them a matrix by under which they should be evaluating projects. The BAR, the Board of Architectural Reviews. Um, so we said split them up into large and small because large buildings were rather new, right? In in Charleston, everybody they they knew how to do small buildings, and it's made up of architects who may have known how to design small buildings, but maybe didn't know the understand the implications of designing on designing large buildings. And not every firm is Ramsa that designs, you know, that knows how to beautifully scale um take very large buildings and and break down the scale to make it look small and even they they've had their challenges um with the bar so the some architects get offended because they felt that it was a little bit arbitrary with the what the the board of architectural review was telling them they thought they understood and then they'd come back and then they would be told we we, we would say we think we did what you told us to do and then all of a sudden we're like no that's not what we want what we intended so there's a lot of frustration on many different ends so we tried to um, clarify the process, broke up the BAR, and then gave them a matrix under which they um, they can evaluate projects depending on the importance of the street they're on. So more of this, less of that, depending on where you are. And and we thought that would be really uh, helpful for the BAR to use. And then a few months later, they reached out to us and said, "Help us! Help us adjust the heights in in downtown Charleston too." And I remember uh, Jacob Lindsay at the time was the plan director telling us. People will fight tooth and nail for one foot, like a 99 foot high, 99 foot high building versus a hundred foot. You're going to get massive arguments. And we were of course trying to change from feet to stories. Um, mm. And we managed to do it in a very short period of time. Um, but um, because what the developers said to us, I'll never forget developers telling us like, you can be as prescriptive as you want. Just tell us that if we do X, Y, and Z, we're going to get permitted on the other end because this, this uncertainty in this time frame is taking forever to do. And so we put in this little one sentence, which we thought was would be good for the BAR, which essentially said, based on exceptional merit, the BAR can give an additional half story. And it has been considered to be extremely problematic because a developer will come forward and he wants that extra half story or she wants the extra half story. And the BAR says no. And so now they're challenging the BAR. You know, like who just determines what's exceptional or what's, you know, has merit or not. And so there, there's, they want some, some want to take that away because they think it's just being applied too liberally. Um, we tend to put that kind of language in all our codes and sometimes it's been very successful and sometimes it's been taken advantage of. So I don't know, but that was a, that was a really interesting, I learned a lot doing that project on a whole host yeah. of uh, levels, especially I've had to code a very particular part of a, you know, how do you code for beauty? That's hard to do. Yeah. Other yeah, than incredible. hire certain architects. Yeah. But you can't. And even then, yeah. yeah, it's even then it's a challenge. It's never perfect. Even then it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, you, years, uh, years ago, you also worked on uh, the Miami 21 uh, project, uh, which was really a landmark uh, form-based coding uh, project. I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what that was and, you know, it's been what? 10, 15 years now since that's been adopted? 
Yeah, more than so. Yeah, so it was. We started in two thousand and four. Got adopted in two thousand and eight. I had just moved here, right. so it's been like third fifteen years, years nearly. And I yeah. just, you know, not because I worked on it. It is bar none the best code I've ever done from a sim that I've worked on. It's so simple. We threw out so many regulations that had that we have such a hard time convincing cities to do now. Um, mm -hmm. And seeing the built results, I think, speaks for itself. It's just, you know, I hadn't been to Miami in, in a few years since COVID. And I was back there recently, um, uh, last month or the month before. And I, I, I was blown away by, you know, the bike lanes, the, now it's become totally unaffordable, but that's not the code's fault. But just mm -hmm. buildings meeting the street, the, 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 the densification around the metro centers. You know, we had dinner one night with uh, Bernardo for Brescia, who's, you know, one of the heads of Architectonica. And he said to us, guess what percentage of people in my office commute to work? And um, or drive cars to work. And, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said 100 percent. I was like 50 percent. He said, no, 23 percent. Everybody mm -hmm. else either rides their bike, have moved to being close to work or take the metro. And the metro has enough from the metro. They have these little freebie buses that can drop people off. That would have been inconceivable. So that that will always remain as one of the highlights of my career, I think. And we yeah. learned so much through it. And it really took um, it took the mayor having the guts to say, throw out the whole thing and start anew. It took the planning director who was so um, uh, open to um, to changing what needed to be changed. And we had, you know, we had a war room and we had so many just sessions arguing through every little bit of the code. But what came out is just, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to replicate it as best I can in different places. And it's, it's hard, you know, it's it's hard to go into cities and tell city council you're going to have less less things you can control, and that's a good thing. So you can focus on other matters. You know, I, I'm amazed yeah. at how they don't want to see the process clarified or simplified because it takes away from their importance, and that's a big problem. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so my, people people like to have things they can negotiate, uh, and unfortunately, there is, yeah. that's, a, that's a part uh, something we deal with a lot, and it, it's a little bit of a downfall of how we've constructed zoning codes uh, in this country that it's become so much of it's become discretionary that it, it, then you get people who run for office just so they can negotiate development projects after development yeah. projects. Um, yeah. So Miami 21 was citywide. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Citywide. Uh, and so over 15 years, so when, when you went back, what, what sort of physical uh, other than like some of the street changes, what some other physical changes you saw that were, most uh different or that you think really came out of the code was there a lot more sort of small scale uh infill all over the city or, or what, so, what have you seen yeah there's 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 i can speak to small scale and large scale first the old code was so unpredictable in terms of the form that came out and because you can go 100 stories in miami it, you can imagine how the unpredictability would cause tremendous consternation so for the very large buildings um, the way they calculated FAR at the time, you know, you could, if you were on the bay, for example, you could calculate your FAR. Your lot was calculated based on you uh, taking, being able to include 80 feet into the water, right? That was part hmm. of your development capacity. So wow. depending on how big your lot size was, you, the, 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 the variation was absolutely tremendous. So for the very large buildings we put in, we changed the way the FAR was calculated and we called it FLR to not confuse and really began to incentivize parking underground or parking completely lined um, so that they wouldn't, and they would, that wouldn't be counted as part of that development capacity. So even though everybody shouted it could never be done, now it's being done without even blinking. Everybody's doing it because they can, they can, they have, they have the capacity. 
and um, we gave them slightly more capacity than they could do in exchange for their buildings having to behave. So much better courtyards, much better ways in which the buildings address the street. These are the high, the tall buildings. Um, distance requirements between the towers, limitation of the size of the towers to their orientation, green building standards, you know, over a certain size, all of that was for the large scale projects. For the smaller scale, so it's starting with a single family home, you know, trying to prevent the snout houses and dictating a little bit what you, how you can, man, how you have to manage your parking. You know, in some states you can't do that, in Miami you can. Um, so we did, you know, do, lots of duplexes in Miami, but with the entire front yard paved. So, so requiring that a certain percentage not be paved with, or at least have pervious pavers was a big part in how they could improve their private, their public frontage. Um, introducing the density at which townhouses could be built, which didn't exist before. You know, Miami went from 18 units an acre for duplexes to 55 units, and there was nothing in between. So, of course, no townhouses were being built. None of the none of that was being done. And all the small sites, like in Little Havana, you know, the T, what we would consider T4, you know, the two to three story walk ups or um, courtyard style buildings, um, were all non conforming in some respects, and they couldn't. Um, they couldn't be redeveloped because th there wasn't enough to put parking on there. And one thing we didn't get done at the time, we tried to be much more aggressive with parking and some of the city councilors wanted to have nothing to do with it. And in some respects, I understand it because transit wasn't what it, what it is today. But after the code was adopted, a few developers came in and really pushed the city to, um, to uh, the seed had been planted to say any lot under 10,000 square feet now should not should be alleviated of parking requirements if, if it's within a certain distance of transit and all that. And that really helped the redevelopment of some of the smaller lots. Um, hmm. uh, and since then, they've actually tightened the parking again because it's caused a little bit of a problem. But, but um, trying to find that sweet spot of where all of these little tiny lots could be redeveloped, a 50-foot wide lot, hmm. uh, was a bit of a challenge. You know, the introduction yeah. of alleys, which some neighborhoods had alleys, others didn't. ADUs, so, you know, some neighborhoods had, like my neighborhood, which is attached to the design district, had an ADU. And the reason I was able to buy my house, because I was able to rent out the uh, the accessory dwelling unit at the time. And um, some neighborhoods wanted it, others didn't. And at the time, we said, okay, let neighborhoods advocate for, for it if they wanted. It should be allowed across the board, but it was too difficult to get adopted. So we said, well, let each neighborhood come and, and, and apply for it, because every neighborhood has their neighborhood association. They're actually quite uh, well. Um, that's how Miami works. And yeah. um, that, that, in hindsight, was actually a good thing, because it wasn't, no, we don't want them, or yes, we want them everywhere. It really became a little bit project-specific uh, yeah. with, with the ADU. So those are some of the small things I remember. Right. And then, so basically a lot of those small scale projects, the townhouses, the the smaller lot things were, were essentially written as part of the code to, oh, to yeah. basically be, by, to be by right, more or yeah. less that you just, yeah, you have fairly simple standards and then you can, you can build them. No, so there no was discretionary reviews. There were very, you, you meet the code by right, you get a, a, approved administratively. There were then, there was a whole, there was an, another sentence in there, which um, some developers have taken advantage of, but overall we basically said, this is why I think it's, it was such a simple code. In some ways, it was so good. You, uh, the city can grant an administrative waiver for anything that is at, that has a deviation of less than 10%. So less than 10% parking, administrative waiver. Less than 10% on height, administrative waiver. And there was no height and density were the two things you couldn't get an administrative waiver on. But we had waivers. We had exceptions. We, it was very clear. And the process is still very clear when you are approved administratively and when you have to go through council. And of course, for those who want the special projects, 
there was a whole special area plan that you have to go through, uh, which is um, which is negotiated with the city. We're going to extract certain benefits from you. In exchange, we're going to be flexible and allow you to shift heights around your own project and that sort of stuff. And so the design district, the evolution of the design district was done using that methodology, the special area plan. It also worked beautifully. Um, so, you know, I, I, um, I'm always wanting to go back to that process. Right now we're working on, in Orange County in Florida, um, helping them where we redoing their zoning code and, and, and advising on the uh, comp plan. The good, the good news is that the comp plan is place type based. And I think that's, um, that's mm -hmm. kudos to the county for wanting to take that route because it has not been easy. But the code is so, has just been, has proven to be very, um, very difficult because there's, there's such legacy language in there. And even yesterday, a whole half hour discussion about how do you allow people to put, um, you know, parklets and allow dining to extend into the into the street, which shouldn't be an issue and it shouldn't require a special event permit and all of that. But they can't, it's hard for them to conceive of how not to do it. I understand they're worried about, you know, who's held liable for what, but it feels torturous. And we just didn't have those challenges. And, and it's not because Miami's more urban, you know? Yeah, well, the right. good news is now there's enough enough cities that have adopted codes that you can always point to. Like even they're they're saying Orlando does this, Orlando does that. We could do it. So yeah, yeah. It, it yeah it strikes me that you know two of the cities that have really boomed a lot in the last decade or so, uh, Miami and Nashville, both had dramatic uh, redos of their codes in about that same era. So you had Miami 21, and then all the work that Rick Bernhardt did. Yeah, in Nashville and Greater Nashville, with very similar approach. Um, actually, know, actually, actually, I would say it's a different approach because what Rick Bernhard did is he 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 didn't. It wasn't a one code across the city. It was right, right. planned. It was yes, it was for the whole city. That's what made it similar. But it was different form, different FBCs, I guess, for different parts of the city. So right. um, it made it easier in some respects, I would think. But it's probably harder to administer now because there's, I don't know how many codes for Nashville, but yeah, Nashville has also yeah. boomed and done very well. So I don't yeah. know what, I don't, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. Um, yeah. I, I would love to have this discussion with, with the city folks to see what they like and what they don't like, because what I do know is that the process has been simplified in Miami. Everybody mm -hmm. tells us that, you know, to get a special permit used to take 18 months. And now I think it probably takes half that time. Yeah. So and even the attorneys who are fighting us because, of course, they saw their livelihood go away, found ways to, to complicate the code and found ways to work within the code as well. Yeah. So well, the attorneys are, they're always going to find a way. They're going to gonna find to a way. Totally. Get work. So. Yeah. Uh, so, Marina, tell me a little bit about what, what it's been like working uh, in DPZ, working with, uh, working under the, the shadow of a little bit of Andres and Liz, who are two of our great you know, mentors and, and people we looked up, look up to in the field. Uh, and they obviously get an enormous amount of media attention and as they should. Uh, as they so, should, rightly so. Yeah. Well, what's, you know, it, what's they, it like working in that atmosphere? They couldn't be more different. So, you know, I, I had, the, I had, um, I, I was one of the few people who worked with Liz initially, as I told you initially, I, I like working with both of them and they've both been such tremendous mentors. I mean, there's a reason I'm still with DPZ 26 years later. I've just, thoroughly enjoyed working with them now I, ha I don't work with them enough at all now since i've been up here i mean i go years that i haven't done a project with either one of them and every time i do the, the last one was probably that the bar with uh, andres and charleston which was in 2015 mm. and liz i literally don't remember and um so or oh, miami 21 maybe um mm. so i every time i work with them i i'm reminded as of 
their, their, their way of thinking. They're constantly challenging the status quo. They're constantly challenging us to think outside of the box. And uh, I'm, I'm never bored. I'm never bored listening to them. I'm never bored I'm picking up the phone and saying, hey, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? And they've mm-hmm. just been so, as you know, incredibly generous with their time, not only with us inside the office, but with everybody else. And I, it always yeah. upsets me tremendously when I don't see that reciprocated towards them. And there are some right. that do and some that, a few that don't. And it's always unfortunate uh, because they've been so generous with their time that way. Uh, look, I'll never be a Liz or an Andres, and I'm totally fine with that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm okay with it. Uh, I have other, you know, I have a family. I have other things that I, I want to focus my energy on. And so, um, uh, but I love the work we do. And I love working with them as best I can. I've got good partners too, and we're all very, very different. Um, yeah. And I, I I miss working with them as well. The one thing about being, you know, being in, this little office is that I'm now fully virtual other than Lou um, who comes in a couple uh, a couple of hours a, a day, but everybody else is, is remote for my office. Now we do enough charrettes that I get together with people and I, you know, and I'm zooming with some of them like what well, it feels like six hours a day, but I do miss the vibe and the energy of being in Miami. And so when I was recently down in Miami, having doing a charrette down there that I hadn't done in, I don't know, six, seven years, I was reminded of how much I miss it. It was a it was a lot of fun being in that environment and being with Liz and Andres, you know, more than a few hours because at CNU everybody wants to see them, so I barely have time with them. Um, right. I I don't have enough face time with either one of them, and I, I wish I did, but I don't. Um, but you know, they're dif- they're very demanding, no doubt about it. Um, I pe- most people in the office think Liz is much harder to figure out and Andres is much easier. I think it's the exact opposite. I've I've always been able to figure Liz out, and I'm, every time I think I pick up the phone, I think, okay, Andres is going to get very upset because I'm going to tell him I'm fighting for this issue, and he'll say, "Let it go." And then other <laughs> things I think I should let go. He's like, "No, you have to fight for it," and this is this is why. So I haven't quite figured that part out yet, but you know, they let us do our thing, and um, they they tell us that we've and Andres in particular, you know, he's really focused on publishing and you know writing his head or dexia trying to get that mm-hmm. out he gave us a brief presentation of it and i was blown away just by yeah. i can't wait for that to come out because it needs to be a whole series of lectures on youtube so that people can have, yeah. can have access to it it's, un, it's incredible i don't understand how his brain works he has the he's he's lucky he has the ability to read something once and retain it i mean he's told me this yeah. and retain yeah. it i i don't i have to reread it and reread it so um I've, it's, it's been a wild wild ride but i've loved it I couldn't imagine doing anything else. That's terrific. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, uh, coming back to the beginning, have you, uh, have you gotten back to Lebanon as an adult? Yeah. So the, when I said, we, you know, we did a competition, so we did a competition in Saudi Arabia in 2009, which really started our work in Saudi, but I went back to Lebanon in 2001. We were invited to do a competition. And this is a funny story because, um, it landed on Jeff's desk. Jeff Beck at the time was the director and he picked it up. He was like, competition in Lebanon. I don't think so. And I was like, hang on a sec. If this was Sweden, <laughs> you'd be going. Dimitri, if this was Greece, you'd be going. I want to do it. And they literally said, you have to be in, in Lebanon in, in a week. So hmm. we, there were four of us that went. None of us American. It was Galina, me, Eusebio, and um, remember Eusebio, a wonderful renderer, and Mo, a Kuwaiti guy at the time. And so we flew to Beirut. And of course, you know, growing up in Paris, lots of Lebanese friends. Most of them haven't gone back, but some have. And in college, one of my best friends was, was Lebanese. And um, she also came on the exchange program to Milwaukee. And she moved back there as an architect. And mm-hmm. so they, there were four firms that were invited. A French firm, a Filipino firm, an American firm, and a Turkish firm. And we were all 
housed in a hotel and all put in different rooms. And we were assigned a Lebanese architect to each team. And this was to design a site in Mecca, like literally right looking down on the Kabbalah, you know, the big, their holy mm. space. Tremendous topography, huge program. We had to learn, the, you know, like the prayer rooms and everything else that goes with Middle Eastern ar- architecture that I had no idea about. The first two days, all we did was go out and party in Beirut. <laughs> And our Lebanese architect got really pissed off with us. He's like, buckle down, stop working. So we're like, okay, okay, okay. And so the firms got very competitive amongst themselves. And, you know, we had to take appointments to go to the uh, copy room so that nobody could see what everybody else was doing. But we presented our work. And um, one of the princes from Saudi flew over and he picked us as the winner. And he said, it looks like you guys have, you understood our culture and you've lived here your whole life, which was very gratifying to hear. But this was in April, 2011, 2001. Mm-hmm. and um, the French firm came in second, and he liked their architecture, and he actually said, you guys should, you DPZ and you guys should collaborate. And so we put a proposal together. Ironically, the French firm was the was the only firm I ever interned with in, my, in, in Paris as an architecture yeah. student, so I knew the guy. Uh, but then when 9-11 hit, everything came to a grinding halt, and it, it never, we never went back, uh, oh, and that project never materialized. I still see the site um, when I, mm-hmm. you know, when I look, and... Um, and they really need to, the, the Mecca has, has evolved in such different ways and they don't know what they want to be. You know, like you need a clear vision to know what you want to do. It's not remotely clear. So it's, you see a lot of hodgepodge and it's a shame because it's, you know, it's their holiest of sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, so that was the only other time I went to Beirut was in 2011, 2001. And um, uh, with the work we were doing, some re, uh, revitalization of the central part of, Riyadh, we, our, our partner, Jacob, kept telling us, oh, we should go to Beirut, we should go to Beirut. And I kept, every time I kept saying, yes, I want to go, yes, I want to go, but next trip, next trip. I had a young kid at home. I always wanted to get back here quickly. And next, 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 next. And then what happened was that they, um, they had, they had the, um, the explosion in downtown Beirut a year and a half ago, two years ago now. And mm-hmm. since then, it's been tough. But I, I, I still want to go back. I have a lot of friends there, and I hope to go back one day. Yeah. Well, you'll have to have to take the family too. I mean, oh yeah, an incredible experience. Oh yeah, my my husband will not have me go without him. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think your your daughter would probably be blown away. She uh, would. She would by that experience. She would for uh, sure. I can't remember. Did you say you uh, you are teaching her French as well? Is that right? Um. So my first two years, her first two years, I only spoke to her in French, and then um because Michael doesn't speak French, I sort of switched to English. I, I really regret it. My younger sister didn't do that. She spoke to her boys in French. And so they're fluent. My older sister, um, one of her, you know, one of her daughters is now studying at the American university of Paris. We've gone full circle, you know, like we left Paris to come study in the U S and now she, well, she grew up at Alice beach. So of course she wants to urban living. So now she's studying in Paris and she's totally loving it and learning French. Lila um, is about to be 12. And um, she's now getting to the point where she tells me, mommy, speak to me in French. So I speak to, I do speak to her in French and she replies back in English. She understands much more. She'll say a few words, but my goal this summer is to really get her to speak a little bit, to speak more, at least to try and to begin. Yeah. She's still young enough that she can, she can learn it. (gasps) Your girls are in the French immersion school, right? Yeah. So our girls are in French immersion. So 
fantastic. Um, you know, teach, get Lila uh, brought up to speed, and at some point we'll get them all together. That's and, right. Uh, That's right. And they can speak French, and you'll understand, and Jamie and I won't have any idea what they're talking about. So. We tried to get Lila <laughs> into the French immersion school here, but we were number 86 on the list, so it wasn't going to happen, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I, I really regret it, though. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah, I remember Brian's daughters were, too. Yeah, absolutely. All three of his daughters. Nice. Uh, well. so, Lovely. Um, well, we're running out of time here, Marina. This has been a lot of fun. I do like to ask my guests, uh, since I call this the Messy City Podcast, if there is a particular place you think of that you're especially fond of that kind of meets the criteria of a more, you know, more organic, small scale, you know, maybe less planned uh, city neighborhood place that that comes to mind that that you think about a lot that you that you particularly enjoy. Well, I'm going to be very um, predictable here. I think I'm going to talk about Paris, but Paris because you know I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and um, so you know you're seeing all these five minute neighborhoods, fifteen minute cities, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like our little neighborhood has everything within a five minute walk, and the entire time we had the windows open, all I could hear were birds chirping and kids playing because we were attached to a playground and mm -hmm. kids laughing in the playground. And I was amazed that this was happening. In this, and you could, can't hear a car. I was amazed that, that, that the quiet side of Paris has that. And we are a 15-minute metro ride, two metro stops within a five-minute walk to the heart of Paris, to the gritty parts of Paris, to the touristy parts of Paris, to the artsy, to the bourgeois, to whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm amazed at the the different neighborhoods that exist in Paris, and they're very, very strong. And of course, you know, they want to reinforce that. Some are better than others, but the the, the breadth of living you have there is is tremendous. And then maybe because I live here, I don't know. I mean, Kentland, growing up, have, raising a kid here, I miss the urban. I tell people Kentland is as urban as suburbia will get, but it's still suburbia. So it's mm -hmm. definitely not perfect. Um but for raising a kid between the age of, and we're lucky that we're 20, you know, we're a 40 minute ride to DC, you know, I wish the Metro was a little closer, but um, raising a kid here in that sweet spot between zero and 15. And, and I see all, you know, Lila has way more freedom than any of her other friends who don't live here. That part's pretty good too. You know, we've got a good network of people because we, we know every one of our neighbors because it's a very convivial place. That part, I like that part. I can tell people, you know, this is why we do what we do. This is why we design the communities we live in, because that sense of community is very much alive. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's totally true. No, Once she goes no, to college, I'll want to be in a more urban area. But, you know, I've, I've realized since COVID, you know, I, I lived in very large cities my entire life. I never want to live in a large city again. I'll never go yeah. back to Miami. Um, I want, uh, you know, it's funny. We do work in a lot of cities that have that 50 to 60,000 people size, 50 to 80, let's say. It's weird. Pensacola, Kirkwood, Missouri. I don't know if you know Kirkwood. We did a downtown plan there. Sure. Uh -huh. Loved it. Um, a, a, a wonderful heritage, wonderful stock of homes, more affordable. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of cities that are around that size. Gaithersburg happens to be a city of around 70,000 people, or maybe 60. Just a good, it's a good size, you know, especially if it's attached to a larger city. It's kind of where I want to be. Yeah. 10 years I mean, ago, it would have been very different. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, even when we were in Savannah, Savannah is not a large city. It's a, about 140,000 people, oh. but it lived much, much larger um, than that because of the tourism economy and because of SCAD being there. And so there were yeah. actually like, you know, metropolitan scale amenities that you had in, in a much smaller city. But just the size of the place was really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so I get that. All right. Well, Marina, thanks so much for doing this. It's been a I lot of fun. It. it was fun. It's and, nice chatting with you and catching up. 
Absolutely. All right. We'll talk again. Take care. Take care. Bye.